Thank you for listening to this forum podcast. Please check out our website for a rich archive of podcasts and writing from contemporary philosophers and other researchers on a wide variety of topics. The Forum is an educational charity dedicated to bringing academic philosophy to a broader audience. Please consider donating to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. Happy listening. Uh, Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the LSE, and welcome to this uh, dialogue on the minds of Wales. Uh, The key questions we're going to be talking about tonight are, what is it like to be a whale? How do they think? What do they feel? How are their social groups structured? How do whale cultures arise? And how has human thought and human culture been influenced by interaction with whales? And I'm very pleased to be joined by two experts from very different disciplines who in quite different ways have been doing wonderful work on these issues. Uh, They are Philip Hoare, professorial fellow in English at the University of Southampton and also author of the wonderful books Leviathan or the Whale, The Sea Inside and uh, a new book called Rising Tide, Falling Star that's out in July. And Luke Rendell, reader in biology at the University of St. Andrews, uh, an expert on cultural lives of whales and dolphins and wrote a book of that title with Hal Whitehead. Now, to give you a sense of the format for tonight's event, um, Philip will first of all give us a talk for about 15 minutes, and then we'll have a discussion uh, between Philip and Luke about the issues raised by that talk, and then we'll have an opportunity for you to ask some of your questions to Luke and Philip. Then we'll move on to a talk by Luke about his work and some further discussion between Philip and Luke, and then, and then a, another opportunity for some questions. So to start us off then, I'd like to invite... Philip Hoare to make some introductory remarks on the history of whale and human interaction and how interaction with whales has influenced human thought. Thank you, Jordan. Um, yeah, good evening, uh, and it's so good to be here uh, talking to you. It's especially good being with Luke, who is one of my heroes when it comes to talking about um, whale science. Um, and um, so just really is to give context to what what, what Luke's going to talk about already and what he and I will hopefully discuss with John and yourselves. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the, um, how we got to this point, how we got to the point that has ended up in Luke's brain, basically. Um, uh, it's a bit like The Simpsons. Instead of that sort of bit where you come out from, from The Simpsons, but we're going down into Luke's brain. Um, so I hope he doesn't mind. Um, <laughs> But it comes in the shape, uh, in the graphic shape uh, of the whale. The whale that um, is there really at the start of, of, of human culture and human history and natural history. Um, uh, because of the uh, trajectory through which the animal and our species have moved. And obviously, the whale is many species, about 85, changing all the time, changing all the time, but 85 species now, I think. Um, Luke can was right on that, maybe. But, um, uh, and the way that that um, uh, uh, history, that shared history, ha- has changed, um, the way that the whale has changed according to what we want of it, 
And so it starts in far as, as far as, 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 as culture is concerned in creation myth and the, uh, the creation myths of the Haida or the Maori um, uh, Christian parable in the Quran. The whale appears as an enigmatic behemoth, the leviathan of the deep. Um, this eldritch creature um, swimming perhaps at the very edge of the known world, of the, of the flat disk of the earth. There be dragons. Uh, those dragons were whales. Um, and gradually it, it starts to change. Um, I'm starting with an image which is a much more image of, of the modern myth of the whale, which is from the Rockwell Kent illustrated edition of, of Moby Dick, published in 1930. A book uh, written by Herman Melville in the 1850s, published in 1851, uh, very much inspired by this city in a strange way. I only just discovered um, this week that, that just before Melville arrived here um, in Craven Street, um, not far from here, alongside uh, Charing Cross Road, where he came in, the, in October 1849, wearing a green coat, of which he was inordinately proud. Um, um, it, just the week before he arrived, a fin whale had stranded on the Thames um, at Grays in, in Essex. Um, a 58-foot-long fin whale, which was seen rolling in the waters um, uh, and some local labourers set out in a boat uh, and lashed it. Amazing, amazing thing to do. Um, uh, a 58-foot-long baleen whale, the second largest of the whales. Um, brought it into the, into the uh, side of the river and dispatched its life with a sword. Um, and then pe- uh, uh, gathered the sixpence which they were charging to come and see this whale, this extraordinary visitation. Um, and um, I don't know, we don't know how far what Melville knew about that animal uh, 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 but we know that when Melville was in London he was getting drunk in the city wandering back down, back down Oxford Street, imagining whales swimming back after him down Oxford Street uh, he saw butchers in Smithfields and imagined it full of blubber um, he went to Windsor and saw um, the Queen riding with her son, the Prince of Wales. Um, so all these things were really mulling about in Melville's head. Um, uh, and it's quite extraordinary, really, that, that book, which is such an American classic, was really born in this city. It's very interesting. But what Melville was doing, he was creating a new kind of ur-whale for our modern myth. I mean, that's the way you all drew, all drew as a kid, I would imagine, the way I imagined, um, painted by my grandfather down the side of the bath and the house he'd built for himself and my grandmother when he'd come back from the First World War. Um, an image which stayed so much in my mind that when I was a kid, I actually didn't like taking a bath. I felt there might be a whale in it. <laughs> Strange. And, and it was partly for that reason that I, was, I couldn't even go near the water. I never learned to swim until I was 25 and I was living in Hackney. Um, <laughs> But that's another story, and, and the, um, in a way what Melville did with the whale um, is kind of what Peter Benchley did with the shark. Uh-huh. He, 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 he created this monstrous creature, and it was a monstrous creature because it was being born of 
one of the great industrial enterprises of the 19th century, that the waning uh, industry of the 19th century, um, in which America, the great new republic, was making its mark around the world, exporting American influence around the world. Um, likewise with Britain, uh, the Netherlands, um, feeding a new industrial revolution with its blubber, with the oil rendered down from its blubber. Um, the, 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 the machinery of the industrial north was being lubricated by whale oil. The streets of New York, Berlin, London and Paris were lit by whale oil um, until the discovery of uh, mineral oil in Titusville, Pennsylvania in 1840-59. It was whale oil that the world ran on and those whaling ships were the equivalent to the modern oil tankers, it had that kind of power. The whale had changed. Um, so just going to just leap back a bit to the way the visual uh, uh, symbol of this animal changes. Um, so this is a, this is a, a medieval illustration, uh, really illustrating those horned beasts spouting, frothed, um, spiky, bizarre creatures. Um, uh, really sort of a chimera, really, in a way. But it's interesting to look at this image and see words we already recognize regarding whale, Belena and orca. There's even the orca's dorsal fin represented there. And the two uh, blowholes of a right whale, this is clearly a right whale, um, which has a very signature double um, uh, blow uh, going off, uh, creating a V shape. This is the whale that was being hunted uh, by the British being brought down to Canary Wharf and the Isle of Dogs. Um, the Millennium Dome is built, actually, on a, on a whale rendering plant. Um, places set out to the olfactory uh, range of the decent uh, uh, citizens of London. So these were animals which are slowly coming into being um, from these fearsome uh, creatures of myth towards something a bit more recognisable as, 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 as modern whales. Um, although, very unlikely, the cachalot or potfish, clearly an overgrown tadpole, um, a finfish, a fin whale, one of the most elegant and hydrodynamic, hydrodynamic and beautiful uh, cetaceans around, it's been a squashed up sort of toad. Uh, and down here, uh, 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 either a right whale or, 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 or a bowhead whale with this very um, characteristic arch. Um, uh, these animals were eluding uh, analysis, diagnosis, classification, partly because human contact with them, although we were using them, uh, you know, if you're female in here, you're likely wearing them, of course it. We never saw them. Um, the only time you happen to see a whale is probably beached, stranded, um, and it's such a, an illusory uh, image of what the true beauty of these animals represents, because they become bloated uh, when stranded, filled with, with gas, and, um, and uh, completely unlike uh, the, the real creature. But gradually, the, the focus, the, the ring on the focus it, it, it comes into focus on, on the animal as we come into the Enlightenment in the uh, 18th century. Um, and uh, here are two, spe <coughs> two species of sperm whale. Um, the French Academy declared uh, in the 
1780s that there were 14 species of sperm whale, but there's only one. Um, uh, uh, it's so shape-shifting is this creature that seems to present itself in, in different guises. You know, a grinning fool here, or a semi-crocodile here. Um, um, these animals are still very difficult to, 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 to think about until the 1830s when the uh, British whaling fleet um, is now extending out into the South Seas um, uh, and uh, hunting sperm whales. And the sperm whale is the, the primary target for the hunters, partly because the sperm city oil, which is contained in this great uh, square, extended nose, as how Luke's um, uh, com uh, colleague speaks of it, it's actually an extended nose. It's full of, of sperm city oil, the finest oil you can have in nature. It, it, it was prized because candles made with it uh, burned with a clear, smokeless uh, translucence. Um, it was uh, uh, unparalleled. Indeed, there's still supposedly used by NASA in the space uh, uh, program um, because it doesn't freeze in outer space. Um, my brother actually worked in the European Space Program in the 1960s, so they were trying to find alternatives avocado oil at one point, but they could never... Um, better um, sperm whale oil. Um, and in the 1830s, uh, uh, indeed as before then, every British whaling ship had on board a surgeon uh, by law as required. Uh, and the surgeon was usually the most educated of the crew. And the crew, uh, the surgeon <coughs> on a particular uh, whaling ship in the 1830s was someone called Thomas Beale who became fascinated by this, this amazing disconnect between the, what this animal represented and the economic power of Britain and, and many other places, uh, and yet was little, so little known. So Beale's Natural History of the Sperm Whale, published in 1835, uh, was the first book to really look at these animals, specifically sperm whales, um, scientifically. Or in scientific terms. Um, and when this book came out with this plate, um, Homer Melville pronounced it the most accurate depiction of the sperm whale. Um, it's still exaggerated, as, as Luke will, will tell you, but it's much more to the life than, than the earlier illustrations. Um, and indeed, Melville um, uses uh, uh, Beale's book to create his book, um, in fact, he plagiarises it big time. I mean, he just copies whole chunks out of it, basically. Um, uh, there's no software just presented doing that in those days. Uh, the worst part of it was that he actually stole the book from New York Public Library. Uh, so, um, so, you know, but of course all great artists steal. Um, uh, and at the same time, it's very interesting from a visual point of view that Melville was being... His imagination was being fed, especially when he was in London, by the paintings of J.M.W. Turner, whose painting here, uh, he painted, Turner painted four scenes of whaling, inspired by the plates, again by the plates in Beale's book. Um, these four paintings were reunited last year, they met in New York. Um, wonderful. And this particular image is haunting and extraordinary, this kind of 
yeasty, squitchy, boggy sea, um, which are the words Merrill uses to describe the turn of painting, um, out of which this great behemoth is rising with a spurt of, of red blood and, uh, and the whale back here. Um, and it, it creates something which is beyond the reality of the whale uh, and extends into uh, a metaphor for, for many of the things Melville was discussing in Moby Dick um, about this relationship between human and whale and where it was taking us. Um, so, leap forward a hundred and yeah, hundred and twenty years to suburban Southampton in the 1960s and 70s with myself and my sister here. Uh, we're very, very interested in whales. I'm un completely unconscious of the fact that we are sort of the uh, 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 unknowing, unknowing recipients of a, of, a, of, a, of a complete change in, in the relationship between humans and whales. When I was a boy, there were still ships coming from the South Atlantic laden with whale blubber, which entered the food chain. Stalk margarine is made with whale oil. Um, uh, uh, when my mother kissed me goodnight, her cheek brushed mine with makeup made with whale oil. Dentist rackets were strung with whale guts. Um, it was still part of the economic discourse of, of our country. Um, but things were changing in the most extraordinary way. Um, uh, although we knew nothing about that, I don't think. Um, myself and my two sisters, actually. But we pestered our parents to take us to Windsor Safari Park, where um, there, was a, there were not only uh, dolphins, but a captive whale, a captive orca. Uh, and uh, it was a very memorable occasion. The dolphins came in, leaping about, balancing balls on the nose, and jumping through hoops and catching fish as their reward. And, it's a moment of kind of realisation that this was really just one big extended circus act. Um, and then the dolphins were cleared from the, from the auditorium, as it were, and this big black gate opens up and in swims Ramu, our other performer. Male killer whale, this extraordinary dorsal fin, two metres high. The most widely distributed animal on Earth after human beings. Um, and the most successful, so probably the most successful predator, I think, we would, would say, um, in an overgrown municipal swimming pool. Um, a hoop is held up, Rama jumps through it, a ball is thrown in there, Rama balances it on his beak, and Rama is rewarded with fish. And for me, um, and I think for my sisters, it was a moment of apostasy. It was a moment of innocence destroyed. Um, but while people were generally moving in a direction towards ending whaling, these animals were still being used in a different way as entertainment. Um, it's quite interesting how that change around happens almost at the same time. Very interesting. And at the same time, too, um, this extraordinary... Uh, This is a, a humpback whale I recorded in Mexico last November. Um, 
and they, this recorded sound um, was released as an album by Roger Payne. Uh, the sounds have been already been, been picked up uh, in Bermuda by a US monitoring station. But Roger Payne released it as an album sort of at the same time as 2001. Uh, and any of you who know 2001, there's this strange noise coming from a, an alien block drawing us on towards the infinite. Um, and of course, what happens when pain releases the sound into popular culture, this is in the album charts with Led Zeppelin and whatever. Um, the animal that had been dumb and unable to protest its abuse suddenly has a voice. And it's not just a voice, it's a threnody. It sounds like a lament. In fact, it's a horny whale. But for most people at that time, it was taken up as this new age soundtrack. Um, and, and really, that was the moment at which, in a way, the whale was saved. You know, by Roger Payne dangling his hydrophone in the Atlantic and recording this animal, um, things changed. Um, to the extent that David Bowie plays a benefit gig for the Friends of the Earth, this is 1972 at the Albert Hall, um, sitting astride a grenade harpoon, <laughs> Ziggy turned into a kind of saviour of the whales, um, astride one of the most barbaric instruments um, uh, devised to kill uh, animals. And for me, that personally, for that, that, that trajectory ends in, in Cape Cod, in the year 2001, <laughs> coincidentally, when uh, I encountered my first whale in the wild, um, uh, humpback whale off, off Cape Cod, um, I remember feeling very um, uncomfortable that, that I was paying someone to take me to go and see whales. I felt this was like another aquarium show or something. I remember standing and proud about saying, okay, show me what you've got. And this 40-ton, 40-foot humpback whale breaching right in front of me, this great barnacled angel hanging there in a diamond sea spray halo with these great pectoral flippers, the longest pectoral flippers of, a, of an animal, 15 foot long, um, uh, uh, five meters long. Uh, no animal deserves its binomial so well. Uh, Megaptera novoangliae, big-winged New Englander, this kind of barnacled angel hanging there and being already a practice writer, I responded very poetically. I said, fuck. <laughs> Because there are no words for it. There are no words. Uh, you know, Hal and Luke have written the best book on the cultural lives of these animals. And even now, I'm sure Luke would admit that that distance has not been closed. That's what we're going to discuss now. Um, so I'll just quickly show a couple of more images of the more modern way we're seeing whales. Last year, you'll remember mass stranding of 29 sperm whales in the North Sea. Um, an almost medieval visitation in a way. Um, uh, necropsies saying that these animals were filled with, with plastic. Uh, there's some linkage being made there, probably not entirely accurate. Um, does, this, does this mean we are more aware of these animals? Does this mean that sperm whales actually, after orca, are the most, next most widely distributed animal? Uh, in the, on, on, on Earth. Um, what is our relationship to these animals now? Um, 
common dolphin which I encountered last year in Provincetown uh, and the sense of what these animals uh, do when they, we are confronted by their physical self, stranded. You'll remember last month the mass stranding in New Zealand um, uh, 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 of pilot whales. Um, and just to end, um, my own sort of closest encounter with, with whales has been in the in Azores, where I've been a number of times um, uh, uh, with sperm whales. Uh, it's one of the best places to see sperm whales uh, near, near, nearest here, nearest to Europe. Uh, and, uh, and being witness and privy to the extraordinary uh, sense of community that these animals have. This is a, a large a female. She's looking after four other younger whales, one, two, three, a little calf behind that one there. Um, it's called alloparental care. We see it as altruism. She's not, she might not be genetically related to any of those other whales. She's taking care of them while their mothers are feeding down at great depth. These animals feed at very great depth. Um, last year we recorded a sperm whale hunting a male sperm whale, a bull male sperm whale hunting for an hour and 24 minutes we were, we were tracking it as it moved in the, the depths um, hearing its sonar clicks moving through the uh, water, we're going to hear more of that later I think, and just to end with, just love this image um, this is a young uh, female we saw uh, in June last year a uh, sub-adult female with these remarkable markings. I don't know, Luke, have you seen a whale like that before? I mean, not, not exactly like no. that. No. Um, <laughs> it's just to me, it's just this. such a beautiful, it's almost sort of comme de garçon, sort of cetacean haute couture. This little grey, this wonderful patch, this saddle of, of white, and then fragmenting. Um, and it's impossible, I'm sorry to anthropomorphise, it's impossible not to believe that animal knows it's beautiful. <laughs> thanks very much, Philip. Reactions from Luke? Uh, thanks. That's, um, you know, I expected nothing less from yourself, having read your books as well. Um, yeah, no one knows the history of the interaction between whales and humans. Um, better than you and, and few people have you know, come anywhere near expressing it in the way that you have um, I was struck actually when you started talking and you, you, know, you were describing this, this guy going at a whale with his sword you know, yeah. in, in a way the, 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 they've acted as a kind of technological benchmark almost for, for our own progress we've gone from, from, from these animals being you know, able to basically you know Extinguish us uh, in the, in the flick of a for mm. tail to to us getting to the stage where you know we thankfully realised that by outright hunting them we were gonna you know and, and we we sort of stopped ourselves there. Um, will we be able to actually stop ourselves with the, all the other effects that we're having on their, their their habitat? You know, it's one of the great and worrying questions of our time. Uh, I think, but they have they have um, uh, you know we've gone from that insignificance next to them. You know, in 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 a Astonishingly rapid space of time, um, and also the fact that um, their fate is in our hands, now, which is yes, now, now, now it is. You know, it was once. You know, if you were at sea, you, your fate was in their tail, as it was, as it were. And, and 
<clears throat> you know, now it's, the situation is very much reversed, and it's, uh, it, 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 they've sort of been a constant while we have, um, you know, gone off in these in these directions. I mean, I think the thing that gives me hope is actually, you know, where where you then went and described how things had changed within your lifespan. Um, and, and I was born in 1973, so there was still some activity going on then, but, but my awareness of Wales was never one of... Um, I mean, remember some of the controversies that still go on, um, but largely, um, you know, the, 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 the practice had, uh, had stopped. And how astonishingly quick, actually, yeah. that was from them being absolutely integral to so many parts of our economic life to it becoming a uh, uh, to to large portions of the population a morally repugnant thing yeah. uh, to do, um, and I think that I I actually take hope from from that rapidity yeah. because I think that we are in a a, 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 a crux time in many yes. ways, uh, and um, we're going to you know some of the changes that we may have to make in order to to really stop some of the large scale changes are as profound or if not more profound. Than the change of going from an industry reliant on Wales to one uh, in, in which we, you know, have a different relationship to them. Absolutely. But the rapidity with which we've been able to do that is it, perhaps a source of hope. It, it's extraordinary, and I think in the way we're still dealing with the psychic reverberations of that. Um, you know, they were still hunting sperm whales until 1986 in the Azores. It's only when the when Portugal joined the EU that that, that ended. And the, and it's quite interesting that the whalers who were uh, hunting these whales, they have these cliff-top towers called Bajirs, where they look out, and so it gives them a, an amazing panorama. Uh, I mean, you know these all very well, obviously, um, but it makes it why it makes it a great place for, for whale watching now, as it was for whale hunting, is you have this great sort of vista before you. So the guy in the Bajir can actually almost it's like a game of chess. He can manipulate the boats in front of him. He's talking to them through a radio. And saying, you know, we've got a pod here, we've got a pod there, and just manipulating them. Um, those guys who were way whaling from those towers, when, when, even on their days off, they would go up to the tower and look for the whales, not to hunt them. This strange connection um, that they, were, they felt sort of connected to them. And of course, they were the people who now, who, who, who when whaling was converted to whale watching, um, mm-hmm. became the same. Same people who were hunter turned. They they will have undergone this extraordinary transformation themselves and seen it happen in front of them. You know, the world just changed so rapidly. Absolutely. From what they grew up with. Absolutely. There was a guy in one of the local restaurants pulled up his shirt and he had sperm whale teeth marks down his back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rather him than me. (laughs) (laughs) Have you actually, what what sort of encounters, uh, how? You know, your, your physical encounters with the animals. I mean, your, your first encounters with them, just to know what... Uh, my first encounters with sperm whales were actually in the Azores in, uh, in 1995. So I was uh, volunteering with a, uh, a group called the International Fund for Animal Welfare who, were, who had, um, uh, as part of their campaign to um, uh, change the way that we were, I guess, using whales... Mm-hmm. Had, had, had focused a little bit on the Azores uh, as a place where, um, you know, you, you could actually see the potential for directly transforming from a from a whale extracting yeah. uh, economy to a whale sort of appreciating economy. Yeah. If you see what I mean, yeah. and, and and they tried to 
so so we actually worked quite closely with Serge, who you oh, went, did you? went oh, out right, with. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember going to see him when he had a very small operation yeah. in, in 1995, and he was still trying to convince. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and he got very excited because he'd fi- he's found this thing called vegetable ivory, which was the kind of nut of a, mm. some some mm. plant mm. in the the Amazon that had physical properties very similar to sperm whale teeth and, and yeah. he, w- he was brought, bringing these things in mm-hmm. and giving them to the guys who used to carve sperm whale teeth and giving them a new economy based on that that, um, that skill um, and uh, we, we did a bit of allo parenting ourselves in the very first encounter that we had with a group of sperm whales um, between uh, 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 two of the islands and I, I'm not sure there wasn't something odd going on because it was a very small group uh, just uh, t- two or three uh, females, and they and they had a calf, and uh, they, they all the adults actually in that group they, they all died. I mean, they guess must have been hungry at the same mm-hmm. the same time. And as we were waiting there, we re- we heard this sound, and we realised that the, the 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 calf had actually come alongside our boat mm-hmm. uh, and spent the next fifteen or twenty minutes um, uh, uh, literally in physical contact with the boat, rubbing yeah, up and down yeah. uh, uh, against it, and we, we just didn't know. <laughs> what was going on but we just sat there and you know um turned off the engine and said well we'll, we'll just have to deal with this and uh, you know you write it down scientifically where whale rubbed against the boat for 20 minutes <laughs> no idea what was going on whether whether that calf had sort of thing well this is a big blue thing at the yeah. i need to swim towards that yeah. and be close to it because uh because yeah. uh, th- yeah. this is this is safety for me um uh, uh, while the adults were away, and then yeah. of course when the adults came, out, it seemed to be oh dear, <laughs> go over there. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's that's yeah. where it all uh, uh, started uh, with, with with sperm whales. I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to encounter fin whale um, that was curious about again a drifting boat, um, and I was actually in the water at that at that point. We just yeah. sort of hung off the back of the boat with a camera, thought well yeah. we can get some nice. images of it. Um, so. Yeah, there are these moments where they manifest a kind of um, what you would have to describe as a curiosity or as an inquisitiveness. Um, um, With sperm whales, you're much more likely to see it with young animals and particularly young males. Um, Don't really know why, but 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 that's the way it is. Um, They do seem incredibly curious. I mean, we were with a a small pod of maybe 50 uh, sperm whales in the Azores in in June, and um, they were just coming right up to us, you know, and... uh, the, 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 as you know, they're, they're, they don't have stereoscopic vision because mm. their eyes are over there. But what they would do is they'd come underneath you and turn upside down and look up. Mm. That way it's the only time they can see you stereoscopically. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it, does, right. it does seem extraordinary. You get them at the right time, you know, the, the, there is a, the, the, they will manifest uh, curiosity. They're also mm. capable of... of Manifesting exactly the opposite, and yeah. <laughs> just sort yeah. of getting on with their lives and yeah. not giving a, a monkeys whether you're yeah. there or not. But something that's particularly about the young, uh, the young males. Uh, so, so one of the, you know, we, you mentioned hydrophones. We often tow a hydrophone that's sort of a hundred meters long behind mm-hmm. our wow. boat, um, uh, and uh, it, it, the, the cable that brings the signal back uh, is actually. Um, originally designed for use in lifts, so it has a Kevlar reinforcement on it. It's supposed to act as a kind of. T- um, but I've never been as glad that we use that kind of cable yeah. as when a when a when a sort of young male in uh, Dominica yeah. became very curious about this thing dangling really? dangling mm-hmm. off the boat, and I watched him sort of take it gently in his mouth and 
and, and slide down it, disappearing <laughs> with this wow. thing running, running between his wow. teeth, whether it was the sensation of it yeah. or yeah. just the general curiosity. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I was very, very prosaic in my reaction because <laughs> I held onto the cable and I could hear him. I could feel it sort yeah. of vi- vibrating, and I was just intensely aware that this hydrophone had cost me £2,000. <laughs> don't, don't bite, you know, just let it run through. And, you know, and it did, actually, it didn't, didn't, didn't do any damage. Uh, so, you know, that was sort of the second day of our field season there, so it would have been a right mess if you'd, if you'd chewed it up then. I just, when you, what always what strikes me is, is the way they move in the water and how fast they can be gone if they don't want to be there. Yes. I mean, it's just, and it's uh, it's one of my bugbears about the human relationship with these animals is the names we give them, and I think sperm whale must be one of the ugliest names <laughs> in the natural. And it, it comes from when that an early hunter pierced that great um, proboscis, really, uh, and the the oil spurted out. They thought it was the sea, uh, animal semen, hence sperm whale. Um, I much prefer the French name cachalot. And in a way, it's not, but I sometimes think it's a kind of double entendre, cache low, hide in the water. Because the, you, the, you can be there, and then they just go. It's like Star Trek Warp Factor 5, isn't it? They're just yeah. like, gone. <laughs> and it's just extraordinary. Um, uh, yeah, well, it's the immense power, I guess, in those tales where they don't have to move them very much. It just looks very lazy, doesn't it? But mm-hmm. you realise that they're swimming... Yeah. You know, faster than you than 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 you ever could. And so it's a constant dynamic situation. Yeah. For them. There is no stationary for a sperm whale. It's mm. something we take for granted, isn't yeah. it? We can just sort of sit down and stop yeah. uh, moving, and yeah. and a sperm whale will never ever, or any other whale actually, will never ever do that no. in its entire life. No. You know, no. you know. yeah. um, of course, because they sleep, they they practically practically shut off half the brain, is it, on the hemisphere and. Um, rest uh, are they sort of semi-conscious because they can't be entirely unconscious yeah. because they're voluntary breathers aren't they yeah so. that's right um, uh, with the sperm whales actually you know, we have a little bit of evidence that suggests that actually when they doze they might do it with both really? hemispheres because oh, so with um, their blowhole at the surface uh, yeah so so we did we published a study a few years ago now which combined some uh, some tag data some suction cup Tag data, right. so you could see what animals are doing in the um, uh, in, in 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 sort of three dimensions. Yeah. Uh, and my colleague Patrick Miller came to me and said, "Look, I keep seeing this in my in my tag data. The whales swim along, they dive, you know, they go to depths. We know that that's fine. They hang out at surface, and then all of a sudden they stop and they just go vertical like this, mm-hmm. and they hang there for about twenty minutes to, mm-hmm. to forty minutes. You know, what do you think they're doing?" Um, I've seen them do this, and mm-hmm. uh, we had an encounter off the coast of Chile where we. Inadvertently, while recording and, and um, getting you know, having the engine off and but the sails up and getting caught a little bit by the wind, sort of sailed through the middle of a group that, that were doing this, um, and we actually see it, you know, on a reasonably regular basis, and they just sort of hang uh, upside, not upside down, but vertically like this, um, uh, possibly because that's their natural sort of floating state because of the yeah. buoyancy in their head. The buoyancy, of course, the yeah. Of their, yeah. When they can relax completely, yeah. that's what they do. It's interesting. Um, Did you hear the report? I just heard a report on radio this morning about elephants sleeping for just two hours at a time. Yeah. Um, and you and how both make the analogy between sperm whales and elephants. Could you just actually talk a little bit about that? Because I find that really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it sometimes annoys elephant biologists because there, there, <laughs> there, are, there are lots of 
you know, dissimilarities as well. Mm. But um, uh, the, uh, the, the the idea, I guess, is that these are both um, uh, uh, species that have attained a sort of size refuge from from, except for their young, mm-hmm. um, largely a size refu- refuge from the. Uh, um, uh, predators in their in, in environments. So there's very few, you know, the sperm whales will, killer whales will go for them, and, um, uh, and possibly other ones. But you know, and occasionally lions will attack young mm. young young elephants. Um, but um, they, you know, reproduce slow, uh, and so as opposed to sort of fish species where you put a lot of energy into producing millions and millions of eggs mm. every, every every year, you know, the, these animals produce young every three to five years and something like that so each one is intensely uh, uh, precious it's a sort of um, you know in evolutionary terms in Darwinian terms that you've invested a lot in that one one calf and that one offspring Uh, and so when each individual uh, young is so valuable um, uh, you, you get this sort of selection pressure for for the social structures to build up around the idea of, of taking care of these young um, because, you know, it doesn't take a loss of too many uh, and they, they are in a vulnerable state. So so there's some kind of... I think what Hal was identifying was some kind of parallel there where the, these are species that have evolved uh, a, a lot of their lives and a lot of their social lives really around this idea of, 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 of the, the preciousness of their offspring in, in strictly sort of brutal Darwinian terms. So I can see we're moving on to our next topic. I mean, before we have uh, Luke's talk on this, I'd just like to fit in two or three questions from the audience uh, before, we, before we then move on. Ideally, as a, as a batch, there's one here, and put your hand up if you have a question, and then we'll do them consecutively. That you mentioned elephants. Uh, I think something might be coming up that dolphins. I mean, how, could you just say something a little bit about the comparison whales and dolphins? Dolphins considered, Dr. John Lilly was a famous person, you probably know about, uh, the most intelligent species after humans, but whales might come pretty close. Could you just say anything about that? Okay. Um, I will do. Uh, as a sort of modern-day student and, and scientist researching uh, cetacean behaviour, I have a very mixed feeling about the legacy of John Lilly, um, uh, who uh, um, you know, made these claims about uh, intelligence, maybe the next intelligence mm-hmm. after man, or even maybe even more mm-hmm. intelligent. Um, and uh, uh, as a result of some of the sort of, I guess, lack of scientific discipline of the thing, in, in the things that he said... Mm-hmm. Um, kind of cast a shadow and cast out the study of cetacean behaviour as a respectable thing for a scientist to do. For Especially 10, as he was dropping acid. Years. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> uh, and that, that, that was in, in, involved in it. Uh, uh, and uh, and um, while, he, you know, at certain points in his lifetime, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced he had some, you know, really amazing you know, insights and, and uh, this kind of thing, he also kind of... Um, uh, made a legacy that we're still in many ways trying to escape when we talk about the scientific study of, 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 of cetacean behaviour. The other thing I wanted to pick up on in your question is this idea of, um, uh, that, that uh, y- you can rank thing, rank species, rank animals, different species in terms of their intelligence and, and this is sort of a, a maybe a natural way of thinking that we fall into um, and uh, I, I was talking about it with a colleague last week and I, I came up with a metaphor that may or may not, not work, but it's this kind of, um, yeah, we, we, 
you'll have heard it in, in the scientific literature is the scala natura, the natural scale, and everything's, you know, we're at the top and everything's mm. sort of gone up. It's almost like a, um, the metaphor I came up with is the train line, right? We all start off at the beginning of evolutionary history and we go along this track and different species get off at different stations, right? Oh, here you are at the sort of uh, a little bit clever station and then you go a bit further mm. and you're a slightly more clever station and get off there. And we're the only ones left at the end of the line, right? And we can look back and say, look at all these animals have got off at different stations on this, on this intelligent branch line, if you like. Um, and, and that's just not the way that evolution works, okay? Uh, because they don't stop and get off. They just carry on in their own direction. Uh, and so, um, uh, uh, you know, a animals that we would have thought, yeah, you think things like bees or insects or ants and things like that, you know, been around for ages and basically stopped evolving. And nothing ever stops evolving. It just, it just continues responding to the selection pressures that it's experiencing. So it's not a, it's not a ladder. It's this kind of branching... Uh, tree, and if you look across the mental feats, if you like, that different animal species can be perform, you see that they're beautifully adapted for the problems that they have been posed by nature. So, if you look at, for example, jays, the jay family of mm -hmm. birds, who who uh, uh, part of their ecology is actually to cache little bits of food and to store it, uh, and and they have a spatial memory; they can remember where hundreds and hundreds of these caches are where they've made them. And they far exceed our ability to do, to do that, unless you train yourself for years and years and years. You can train your mind. That's one of the, things, the great things about human mind. So, so um, I think it's a natural, it's an easy-to-understand kind of mistake in the way that we think about the relationships in terms of intelligence or not intelligence in terms of animals, that there's some kind of ladder or train line that we've gone down and, and stopped at different stops, when in fact everything is responding all the time. And John Lilly was also, he's very keen on the, the communication thing, the, uh, Dauphinese, he, he sort of termed their language Dauphinese, and he created this extraordinary environment um, where um, his researchers could live 24-7 with dolphins in a semi-submerged apartment in the Caribbean, didn't he? Uh, and, and I think he, he was so focused on the notion of, I mean, you, you write about it in the cultural lives of whales and dolphins about, I mean, it, Language, vocabulary—it's—it's um, it's just not there. Um, uh, no matter what we do, it's mm. not going to be there. Mm -hmm. So it's—that's uh, one of the great things about you know this notion of quotes intelligence and these kind of these, these hierarchical things. The notion of us communicating with them, sort of. Uh, there's the there's us, and then there's the rest of creation. You know, as if there's this we're so mm -hmm. so unique. Thanks. Okay, Luke, tell us about the, uh, the cultural lives of whales and dolphins. Okay. <laughs> I'll have a go, shall I? Um, <clears throat> I wanted to start my talk, so happily turns out to link quite well with what we were just talking about. One of my favourite pictures of sperm whales, really, taken by the great National Geographic photographer, Nick Nicklin. And this is a group of sperm whales in that characteristic, uh, curious uh, posture where they're actually you know, using the one angle at which they can stereoscopically view things to, to view the photographer uh, uh, in this image. But I think it's just a beautiful um, way to summarize maybe some of the way that, that we experience uh, these animals. And one of the questions that led off this session was, um, yeah, what, is, what is it like to be a whale? And I think probably the easiest way to get yourself somewhere like it 
uh, is to is to simply close your eyes, okay? Because they live in a uh, 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 they don't live in a world that is that is uh, illuminated by light. It is illuminated by sound. And I'm going to play you a sound. I hope it's loud enough. Um, of uh, not these animals, obviously, but some sperm whales producing these. Um, you know, Philip mentioned they, they they make echolocation clicks, long trains of clicks. Um, a large part of my scientific career has been has been dedicated to studying the very specific patterns of clicks that they make in sort of social contexts that, that are called coders. And you'll hear some sperm whales making some coders, um, and then you'll hear the echoes of those coders coming back from the bottom of the sea a couple of seconds later. Um, and it's a curious feature of the physics of sound in water that it's five times travels five times faster in water than it does in air. So 1,500 meters a second. So in the few seconds that it is taken for that sound to, to, to bounce off the bottom, it's travelled, you know, maybe 3,000 metres, 3 kilometres, or more. And you'll see how clear those echoes still are. Away with words that I that I don't, and he's managed to capture in his Leviathan book something of what is our maybe our emotional response to seeing these animals in their natural environment. Where it, and, and it sort of summarises a little bit away. Also, my scientific experience, which is you know, the closer I get, the further away they seem, and the more I learn, the less I know about these strange cetaceans. Mammals like us, yet so separated in scale to our microcosms of greater unknown from the sea to infinity. Um, I just think that's an absolutely fantastic way to summarise what we sort of feel. But these are emotional responses, okay? These are things that, that sort of interact with our own personal history, our own personalities, our own perception. And as a scientist, I'm supposed to cleave to the idea that we, we, we do things objectively and we collect data and we make measurements in some way that we can, we can agree on commonly, that isn't, isn't dependent on our personal histories and our particular personalities. Um, the challenge, of course, uh, I think this, this is, I'm going to show you a video, I'll set it going. If, you, if you're very sensitive to motion sickness, you might want to look away. Okay, it's a sort of time lapse of a, a, a few hours on a research boat off the island of Dominica. And uh, you might not, the point I want to make is, okay, uh, we are right in the middle of a group of sperm whales here. We can hear them all around us on our hydrophone. We're tracking them as individuals. But you won't see them on this video. All right? You might see them uh, in a little bit. We'll get all excited and start pointing, and the boat will go fast. Uh, and we'll try and get to one. Here we go. Okay, keep watching. Keep watching. There it was. Right. <laughs> okay. So uh, the windows that we have to scientifically study these uh, animals are, are, are really quite small. And, and we were talking earlier about this idea of them being technological benchmarks. Well, they're, they're still technological benchmarks, but, but the technology in question is our, is our research technology. Okay? 
Um, yeah, we still have these vast unexplored oceans right here on our planet. I mean, never mind the other side of the moon or anything like that. But anyway, if you spend enough time doing that, uh, you, you get to know these animals as individuals. Being scientific, we give them numbers and not names, because that makes us scientific. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but you, you see the, the sort of individual life stories of these animals in the, in the ragged shapes on the tails, and we get to get to be able to build up a picture of what their society looks like. Okay? And, and the pictures, and we're going to move into multiple species now, but the, the pictures uh, look like this. Okay? So these are, these are called social network diagrams, um, and uh, the idea is that each one of these is, a, is an individual, and the lines between them tell you something about how often these individuals are seen together. They're, they're representations of their association indices. Uh, this is a population of humpback whales, uh, which Phil may well have seen members of, off of Cape Cod. It's the population that summers off the Gulf of Maine. And this sort of grey cloud is actually so many lines connecting all the individuals that you can't make them out individually. It just appears as a grey kind of shade. Uh, the fact is that these animals, uh, there's 650 represented here, they don't have much in the way of population structure within a population. They're extremely gregarious. They hang out with uh, almost anyone. Okay, um, and the four species represented here are the four that that, that that sort of feature most prominently in our book, I suppose, because they're the ones that we know most about. Uh, they're the ones that have the broadest distributions, and they're ones where there's the strongest evidence for, for things that we might call culture going on in their societies. And I strongly suspect that these are not coincidences; that these are all uh, uh, the same uh, process going on. So we go from our sort of very gregarious humpback whales to our bottlenose dolphins, so this is a New Zealand population in Doubtful Sand, where you still see a lot of gregariousness, but you can start to see a little bit of structure, actually. There's two major groupings here, all of which hang out with each other, but not many connections between them. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and then we can look at killer whales, uh, where you start to see very, very clear group structures, individuals that spend almost all their time together, uh, but they still hang out with other killer whales, just not, not as much, but they form a sort of community. Okay? And then down here are your sperm whales. Uh, and sperm whales are noteworthy because they have these extremely strong bonds within their units, uh, and yet they don't really seem to spend a lot of time interacting between those units like the killer whales do. Mm -hmm. The one exception is, is males, um, uh, because they are... Um, uh, they, they get horny, in Philip's <laughs> words. Um, and, uh, they don't want to restrict themselves to just one group of females. They want to go around. And so they, they become sort of... Uh, they look like that in the middle. Um, <clears throat> and so the point I want to get across here, okay, is actually the diversity in those social structures. And this is one reason why we like to study, I think that it makes sense to study cetaceans in the wild, because if you're interested in, in how societies evolve, and how <coughs> societies evolve have different forms, like this, or like this, then looking at the evolutionary pressures that these different societies are responding to it's a very good way to get insight into that question, I think. Um, and what we see is that these structures have profound effects on the, t on the way that information flows within those societies. Okay? So I'm going to go through a few studies here. I'm going to do it fairly quickly, and you're welcome to pick me up on details afterwards. Um, so I've spent a lot of my life, as I said, studying these, these coda patterns, and I've been fortunate to do it in a number of different places. And the kind of patterns that you make, that you hear, tells you something about where you are 
in the world. So one of my most recent projects is in the Western Mediterranean, where there's a very vulnerable population of sperm whales. Oh, what have I done here? <laughs> I pressed end. That was a mistake. <laughs> uh, right, right, I'll just go very quickly. Here we go, here we go, getting there. Uh, right, back here. Um, here we are. That, that's where uh, they are. And if you, if, you, if you listen to sperm whales there... They, 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 have, they make that code, and they make almost nothing else, okay? And, uh, again, being scientists, not, not authors, we give uh, nice names to these patterns, so the three plus one. Um, <laughs> um, uh, if you go to Dominica, where that video was, was, was shot, then you hear something different. That's not working. All right, it goes like this. Right, it's one plus one plus three. Uh, and... If you go to the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific, okay, this is sort of, so we call that again imaginatively the six R coda. Uh, and I've just, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with a student, uh, uh, Tiago from Brazil, who's got some recordings of, of sperm whales off the Brazilian coast. I'll play that to you again because it went by kind of quick. So they kind of start off in this dirt, dirt, dirt regular and then they go a bit crazy dirt, 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 towards the end. Uh, but very distinctive. Um, and uh, uh, at the moment we don't know what to call it, so we're calling it. <laughs> 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 um, uh, but, but one of the curious, most curious things is if, is if you go to uh, the, the, the Galapagos and um, you can actually record different types of these coders from different groups, okay, so the regular one we've heard, but some groups you'll follow around and they will make uh, they can kind of hear that, that little pause before the last one, uh, we call those plus one, so they're kind of related to the three plus one, but in the Mediterranean they only ever do three. It's three plus one and that's it. Whereas here they'll do three, four, five, six, this kind of thing. Uh, and then another imaginative name. Uh. Okay, so... Um, We've collected as much evidence as we can, and all the evidence we have, but I don't have time to go into the details of it, suggests that these, these are learned patterns um, and, and that they are culturally transmitted. Uh, and because the, you remember the sperm whale social structure is very, very tight, these groups, uh, these go down the lineage as they go vertically. Okay? There's not a lot of transfer uh, between. And so in the Galapagos, there are, in fact, we think, uh, three at least uh, uh, distinct cultural groups so this, this is what led us to term the South Pacific or Eastern Tropical Pacific sperm whale population is the, to be multicultural. Right? There's different uh, uh, vocal dialects living, living in the same place. But they don't meet. In the rare occasions when the social units do come together, they only do it with animals that make the same type of code as themselves. Um, 
And more recently, actually, we've been able to document a, 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 a shift, really. Um, previously, the, the, uh, the, 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 animal, the waters around the Galapagos have been dominated by these two uh, codotypes, groups of these two codotypes. This, this group was only heard uh, once, and, and we thought it was a rare thing. Uh, and then for some reason, mysteriously, uh, in... Um, get my dates right here, in, a, in about 1999, 2000, sperm whales disappeared from the Galapagos. The, the sighting rates just went way down, and it was no longer uh, uh, really feasible to do research there. Um, and then in the sort of 2010s, they started to come back. I mean, 2014, 2015, I went down there with a PhD student and, and on Hal's boat, and a PhD student called Mauricio Cantor, and we recorded the sperm whale groups that were coming into this area, uh, and, and we didn't hear any of these. We only heard these, and we had another vocal grouping that we'd previously only recorded off the coast of Chile. So had, there had been this kind of transplanting somehow. One population had left, another population had moved in. And we only knew about these dynamics because we'd been able to track the behavior, the open behavior. Okay. And so it's a really interesting study that sort of makes you question whether you're studying biology or history at this point, right? uh, as clowns move in and out of a particular area. <coughs> okay, here's our humpback population again. It's a, it's a blob, a bit like the one we saw. Here, here is where all these sightings uh, relate to. So these are waters that Bill knows well, uh, uh, the temperature of them as well. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, this, this is been laid out in a particular way. Okay, it's not random the way this network is laid out. It looks like a big blob, but you see the, the lines get darker in the middle here. That's because all the animals that uh, uh, have a lot of connections, the most gregarious ones, are pulled in towards the center. Just, just, just as a, a technique for visiting networks called spring embedding. Um, but it results in the animals that have relatively few connections out on the edge of the ones that do. In the early 1980s, a new feeding technique, an elaboration of an existing feeding technique, called kick feeding was, was um, uh, um, seen in this population. And through the astonishing work of a guy called Mason Weinrich, who over this entire 30-year period has been organizing for volunteers to go out on whale watch boats and, and, and record which animals they see and what they see them doing. Not sophisticated techniques, just visually taking a picture, it's that animal, they were there, and this is what they were doing, has allowed us to track the spread of this new popular this new feeding behavior elaboration called kit feeding through the through the population um, and I will I will uh, okay I will not be able to show you a video of it going through okay um, so okay I'll, I'll just explain what happens red here is where this this technique happens and if I play the video, what you'd see is all these dots in the middle turning red, and very few of them around the edge turning red. Okay? And so when we do quantitative analysis of this, we see that the, the most important determinant of whether you as an individual whale started doing this behavior was actually how many other whales that did it you were hanging out with at the time. Right? So strong evidence over a 30-year sort of time scale for social transmission, the, the cultural spread within a population. Okay? Notice how the sort of gregarious nature of this, this network means that, that it spreads through a population sort of horizontally quite quickly. Uh, and finally, I, 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 I'm going to talk about uh, uh, killer whales. Um, 
you might think killer whale is killer whale is killer whale. Well, that's not the picture that we have right now as, as, as scientists. It's evolved rapidly over the past 20 years. Uh, as people have uh, researched different, more and more different populations in more and more different places and realised the astonishing diversity in the way that different populations of killer whales make their living. Okay? And like in the case of the sperm whales in the Galapagos Islands, sometimes this diversity occurs in the same place. Right? So off of uh, uh, um, um, the west coast of Canada, you have in the same waters groups of killer whales that specialise in hunting other marine mammals. So this is a porpoise being thrown in the air. And others that specialise on, on, on salmon okay, and have become uh, you know, adapted almost to, to specific salmon runs. Um, but they share the same waters. Okay? In different places in the world, you see, you see killer whales that attack large whales, killer whales that eat herring. Uh, killer whales in two different places have uh, developed this technique of going up the beach and grabbing pinnipeds off the beach. Um, in New Zealand, there's a population of killer whales that, has, uh, 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 that, that can forage on, on stingrays, which is not an easy thing to forage on. Uh, and it has to be done right, but they have a specific way of, of doing it. Uh, and then in Antarctica, there's this extraordinary diversity of no less than four different types of, of, of killer whales, one of which specializes on, on seals and has an astonishing hunting technique where they will, they will swim together towards uh, pieces of ice and generate a wave. Um, uh, which has been beautifully analysed by, by uh, 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 hydro hydrographers at MIT, not, not, no less, as being beautifully adapted to focus uh, uh, the energy of the wave on one particular point, mm. rocks the seal off. Um, uh, and in fact, it's not just any old seal, they specialise on, on, on two particular species of all the diversity that they're in Antarctica. We don't know why. Another one focuses on penguins. Another one focuses on minke whales, the sort of most common other cetacean species in, in, in the waters. And another one uh, hunts Antarctic fish, as far as we can tell. So in the same place, in the same waters, you get this kind of diversity. Um, and we don't know what to make of this, actually, uh, because as biologists, we'd like to have nice, neat species categories and have things all fit into these nice, neat categories. And killer whales completely confound us, because there's a great deal of similarity between all these animals. But if you look at the genetics, the maternal lineages have been evolving separately for in excess of 100,000 years. So are they a species, a collection of subspecies, or a species complex, or a set of completely distinct species? And yeah, we don't know. I mean, often biologists like to take tests like, well, can they mate together? Well, the fact is, in the captive, in the captive industry, animals from these different, the different ecotypes, as they call it at the moment, that may well change, have mated together and they, they have third generation offspring that are still perfectly fertile. So there's no reproductive isolation that's evolved here. So it challenges the species concept in quite a profound way. And, and we think that the reason it does so is because their evolutionary history, the, the diversity of this group, um, is a result of an interaction between biological and cultural evolution. <coughs> Uh, I just want to return maybe to the theme of interactions between humans and, and, uh, uh, and cetaceans uh, to this astonishing story uh, on killer whales or one of the adaptations or one of the sort of specialisations uh, that existed briefly for this particular population of killer whales off an uh, ironically named town called Eden uh, in Western Australia where humpback whales regularly migrated through 
uh, was this was this kind of collective whaling operation that that uh, used both humans and killer whales, uh, and the, the group of killer whales would uh, make a commotion when a humpback sort of swam too close to the bay and harass the thing, and, and the, 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 the whalers would see this and they would come out. Um, and they'd stick a harpoon in the humpback whale, and then the, the, the killer whales would go and grab the rope that was hanging off this harpoon. And they would use their body weight to drag and tie, tire out the humpback whale, thus making the, the life of these whalers much, much easier. It's much safer to lance an exhausted humpback than it is one that's still got a lot of fight in it. Mm. Uh, the whalers would then uh, um, attach a big weight to the, the, the whale carcass and... Um, sink it down, the water wasn't very deep, and it would just, they would just hold it there and they put a boil on. The killer whales would come in and they would eat the tongue, and they were very, very specialist uh, animals. The, 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 the killer whales that, that eat big whales often only eat the tongue. Uh, interestingly, the killer whales that eat penguins often only eat the breast meat, uh, so, so they're quite fussy. Um, uh, which, uh, you can find lots of documentary evidence of, of Inuit people in the north who were sort of direct competitors of killer whales in that environment getting really cross with killer whales because they were so wasteful. <laughs> really wasteful hunters and, 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 and the, the whole Inuit culture is about making the very, very best use of all the, because there's very limited resources available to you in that harsh environment, so you've got to get everything you can out of it. And they consider these killer whales to be awfully wasteful. And anyway, these, the, the whales would then eat the tongue uh, and then they'd go away again and a couple of days later the whales would come out, recover it, bring it back and process the body. Okay. Uh, and, and this is the, the big male of that group called Old Tom, and his skeleton is still preserved in this, in this town. And what you see here is the wear that was, that was created on, on, on his teeth by grabbing the rope uh, from the last bit. Okay. They think he died from an abscess created by that. Well. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so the seeds of his own destruction yeah. sort of... Um, which is, uh, I mean, I'd very briefly make the point that, that that sort of nicely illustrates, of course, whaling stopped and that this niche disappeared. Uh, and this may be one reason why we don't have uh, unquestionably different killer whale species around the world, is that the niches that they specialise into, the more specialised you are, the more vulnerable you are, essentially. Okay, generalists have a robustness, they can cope with one particular species uh, disappearing. Specialists cannot. And so maybe what we're seeing is a snapshot in a very dynamic process where, where animals learn to take advantage of a new niche, pass that knowledge on, become so specialised that they then become vulnerable in that niche to, to extinction events or, or random things, and that particular niche dies out. Uh, so that's why, that may be why it happens. Okay? Why do we want to keep doing this? I mean, I'm going to return really to, to sort of explaining to us something about ourselves, but maybe explaining a lot of things about... Uh, the general evolutionary principles that underlie the evolution of some uh, particular aspects of society and social life uh, and culture, where we just study ourselves, we have an N of 1, okay, and that's not very useful in a comparative evolution sense. Cetaceans have in excess of 80 species. We see the diversity in the social structures. We see the diversity in the way that culture evolves in these different things. And so it has a lot of potential to tell us things about the way that evolution works in mammals with complicated social lives uh, and cultural interactions. And, and we're starting to see that now with some amazing work that's coming out of Darren Croft uh, and his colleagues in Exeter who are working with some of the data that's been collected, again, meticulously over decades by, by individuals just going out and, and seeing who's there and, and there at the time. 
uh, and we're starting to understand uh, how you know one of the interesting features of, of cetaceans is that there are there are at least three species in there uh, who have uh, menopause, who have a, a significant post-reproductive lifespan, and that's almost unheard of in the mammals apart from us. Okay, uh, and we know enough about the demography of these species to understand that uh, uh, not only uh, are um, uh, mothers and grandmothers selected largely for the success of their own grand offspring, so this grandmothering hypothesis where you use knowledge that uh, can help you in, in, in times that of rare events, um, but also the demography sort of leads, as, as key whales get older and older, they become more and more surrounded by their kin, so you get these kin selection effects, which also promote uh, extended post-reproductive lifespan. I'm sorry if that's just a bit too technical, um, but, um, and I'm happy to explain it in, in, in more detail. But um, uh, it seems that there may be some parallels there in helping to us to understand some of the features of our own society. So, so coming back to us. Uh, <coughs> that was it. So, so the message of our book really is that we think in, in at least some species of whales and dolphins, uh, uh, culture is vital in the sense that, that, a, that, a, that a whale cannot develop into a fully functioning adult member of its society without the cultural input that comes with developing and growing up in that society. That's why perhaps some of the killer whale reintroductions have failed, for example. What that says about their minds, I don't know. Maybe we can talk about now. That's all I was going to say. Thanks very much. About uh, five minutes or so for reactions from Philip. Yeah, well, uh, it's just extraordinary. Actually, just a quick little footnote about Eden. I've been to Eden, and... um, there was another um, use being made for the whales there. They would, um, when they brought the humpbacks in, occasionally they would um, uh, rent them out to human beings to come and, as a kind of whale sauna, sit in the whale. And apparently the bo- residual body heat of the whale is meant to be very good for rheumatism. So <laughs> someone can sit in a rotting dead whale. Um, um, but uh, yeah, another extension. I suppose there's, there's, so many, there's so many things that sparked off by, I mean, just kind of mind-blowing uh, notions. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about what the, um, what, 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 what the, the, the click systems, the, the coders, um, what, why they should develop? What, um, why they should what, develop? What are they for? <laughs> <laughs> um... um well, we don't know. I mean, we can only speculate, right? I'm going to be awfully scientific. Sorry about this, but um, we, we, we have to um, be very cautious in, in not jumping to too many conclusions. Um, what, what we can say, and we've done some studies of, of uh, you know, they often like to make these things together. They make them at specific points, right? They dive, they leave the surface, but before they get to their foraging depths, they will often exchange a few of these, these coders, and then they go and they forage. And then you'll often hear them doing it again when they come up to the surface. Okay, so that suggests there's a there's a real coordination role going on there. Um, the group is is life to the sperm whale. Okay, a, a female sperm whale on its own is doomed. It, it may not survive. It's certainly not going to reproduce successfully because it cannot feed itself and protect its calf because the calf can't follow it down to the depths. Right, and it's that dilemma, that conundrum, which we think has has has, has driven the evolution of the whole social system and these very, very tight bonds within the group. And so the other time they do it is when they're resting at the surface and they seem to really like doing it in some kind of synchrony then. Okay? Mm-hmm. So they definitely o- like to overlap each other. 
So if one whale starts a coda, another one will join it, mm. right? And sometimes they match types, and sometimes they don't. And they do it when they're right next to each other. So it can't just be something that is about coordinating over a long distance. Mm. Uh, and they do it when they're sort of several hundred metres apart mm. as well. Um, so the sort of best, and, and I admit this is a sort of, from a scientific perspective, very woolly idea, is that it's some kind of uh, uh, bonding, yeah. okay? Um, and perhaps the biggest, the, the closest we can get to that is that, you know, I don't know if any of you are in, in, in drumming groups or, 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 or anything like that, but uh, we sometimes get a kick out of making similar rhythms to other, mm. you know, group production of, of, of rhythms. Uh, and maybe there's some kind of reward system going on there that helps you sort of bond within your group uh, and maybe there's a similar kind of bonding going on within sperm whale groups when they make these particular things and then you have the variation between the groups which probably arises naturally over evolutionary time but then also tells them they're kind of home right yeah. if you recognize those coda types then okay this is this is where i'm supposed to be it's, this is these, these are the people that or the, these are the, these are my whales as well um, I, I suppose the other thing that uh, we were talking earlier about, um, there was a paper published earlier last, well, last year uh, by the University of Bern talking about orca, uh, uh, I their evolution, um, the, the only other species other than humans whose evolution is directly affected by their culture. Mm. Um, there was a big furore about that at the time, uh, I remember. Um, could you maybe just comment on that? Oh yeah, I didn't consider it to be controversial at all. <laughs> uh, it, uh, uh, you yeah, know, this is. Um, uh, I guess why it's controversial is because this idea that genes and culture co-evolve and that they affect each other's things is something that's only really been identified in human societies. And the classic case is lactose intolerance, yeah. uh, or lactose tolerance, which is the weird thing. Lactose intolerance is the ancestral state because ordinary mammals, all mammals, stop eating milk, drinking milk when they, they become adults. Um, but that has become selected for in populations with a cultural history of dairy farming. So the idea is your, your learned behaviour changes your selection pressure, changes your, your, your genetic makeup. And that is probably the predominant evolutionary force in the human genome yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, and um, this paper was kind of documenting how in these different ecotypes that I, that, that I put up, um, you could detect variations in specific sets of genes. And we're at a state now about a kind of weird scientific state where we can we can we can say that two genomes are different in certain places uh, but we're still profoundly ignorant about what those genes do you know we have some notion of what pathways they're involved in but we don't really know what the variation we're seeing means um, but we see variation in things like uh, uh, genes associated with dietary enzyme production uh, and things like that which are obviously going to be related to the diets that these, these, these particular animals are specialised in. So the idea is that you, you learn to, to, to exploit a new, you know, maybe you're a generalist and you learn something, but then a, a specific opportunity comes along, like there's a, there's a big salmon run at a particular time of year, or one of your group innovates a way to safely eat stingrays, uh, and, then, and, then, and then your entire group kind of focuses on that, uh, and it changes the selection pressure that that group is experiencing, even within the same habitat, right? Because in the human history, you had non-dairy farmers and dairy farmers right. in the same in the same habitat. Right. So there's some. I think there's a you know, very profound similarity in the processes, the evolutionary processes that are ongoing. Right. What it says about the mind, I don't know. <laughs> this is so it would be be great at this point to have one or two questions from the audience on uh, on this stuff. We'll have a.
two consecutively. We'll have uh, one here from the front row, and uh, then we'll go back to, I think, the fifth row. Thank you very much. These are wonderful talks. I, I'd like you to both to say something about the difficulties and the challenge of doing scientific research when you don't, uh, you, you don't, you can't do experiments in whales either ethically or practically in the same way that you can do with fruit flies or mice. Uh, but for instance, how could you work out, how could you tell whether a whale knew that another whale was its grandmother? And if you've got a social species, uh, does it not mean that you also you need the skills almost of an Anth a social anthropologist in order to understand uh, or guide the approach to looking at another social species. Great, thanks. And second question? Uh, hi. Uh, so I was wondering about um, the social networks that you showed at the beginning of that second talk. Um, and they were pretty distinct between the different species of cetaceans. And you also talked about how um, orcas in different parts of the world have very different behavior, which is um, like a community thing. And I was wondering if the data exists or if you would expect to see difference in that social network structure between these communities in different parts of the world. Thanks. And let's also just take a third question. There was a third one from the, the second row here, middle of the second row. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask, is there any interest or um, sort of research happening in Japan um, on whale culture and intelligence? Um, you know, I recently read a, a book about primatology and how a lot of the early research and knowledge about culture in primates came from there. And I wonder, you know, you know has a sim is a similar thing happening with whales? And would that affect sort of the Japanese kind of culture and towards whaling? Thanks very much. Three great questions. Uh, Luke? Uh, okay, uh, I'll have a crack. So, so yes, we're, we're, we're extremely restricted in our ability to, to perform experiments uh, in the conventional sense that you, that you would do uh, in the lab. And this creates challenges. It creates tensions with my colleagues uh, yeah. as well. Um, and you're, 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 you're doing a different kind of science. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to shamelessly borrow a bit of grandeur but it's the same kind of science you do on things like the Big Bang or things like this, where you can't go and observe it. You can't experimentally create one universe with one condition and another one with another. You know, you, you are, you're doing a, an, an observational science and you're making inference, which means you have to be quite careful. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, my colleagues are very good at uh, keeping me careful, shall we say, uh, which is a very, very valuable surface, and that's, that's why science has the power it has in my perspective from my perspective, um, but it, it does create uh, huge challenges. How would you know if an animal thought it was a grandmother, uh, recognised its grandmother? Um, you can do uh, playback experiments, things like that. There's a, there's a chap called Jason Brook, who's at St Andrews right now as a postdoc. During his PhD, he, he went around sort of captive dolphin facilities and, and traced the history of which dolphins had been housed with which dolphins, and then went and got the signature whistles of those dolphins and was able to show... That, do that the dolphins in a particular facility would respond differently to signature whistles of their tank mates from, from in excess of 10 years ago than they would to signature whistles of you know, at dolphins that they have never known. Right? So you can, you can do those kind of things. But again, you know, uh, the, the, the captive scenario may be diminishing as we, as we speak. And, and, you know. um, 
And it's such a, a fast-moving and young science, isn't it? I mean, it's really... Yeah, it is. It is. Fast-moving in a way, but, I mean, almost, you know, I, I want to plug, really, the idea of doing simple science for a long time. Yeah. Simple observations mm -hmm. built up over time have yeah. such an immense power in yeah. a society of long-lived yeah. animals yeah. like this. So, yeah. we, yes, technology is doing us a great thing, but if we can keep doing also simple things that people were able to do 30 years ago... Yeah. That continuity is is, yeah, uh, is uh, immensely powerful. Um, remind me the other question. And the, the Japanese context. Right? <coughs> Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't. I haven't anything specific to. Uh, I, which book were you reading? What was the? Uh, it was by oh, the guy called Van der Hall or something. Okay. Yeah. About, like, oh, right. It's yeah. Not sure right. Happened. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 I, I read it, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I have colleagues in Japan who were recording sperm whales and, uh, uh, and, and uh, um, you know, contributing to some of the sort of large-scale analyses that, that uh, uh, my other colleagues of mine are, uh, are doing. Um, so, yes, that, that research is, is definitely happening. Uh, uh, in, in, you know, it's a very strange situation. My... my Understanding is that actually the culture of whaling doesn't go particularly far back in Japanese no. culture. No, I mean it's really interwar. I mean it was uh, Japanese great whaling was basically taught to taught to them by us, <laughs> uh, and most specifically uh, after the Second World War when the the, the the Japanese whaling fleet was created out of the decommissioned Japanese naval fleet, um, basically to feed people who we reduced to starvation in the first place. And, Hence the, uh, uh, the the reluctance of Japan to to take uh, our pre prescriptions about about hunting whales. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a long memory there as well in the way there is for the whales themselves. But mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so because the whole story is is a very emotive one, and, uh, and then there's a lot of human investment in this story, um, and there's a lot of anthropomorphism. There's a lot of you know, and that's why. I find that, uh, that that part of the story such a such a fascinating one because it's it's changing so much and it reflects a lot on on us. Yeah. Yeah, just very quickly, the, the question about social structures varying. Um, where we have the data, they absolutely do vary between the ecotypes. Uh, we know that the, the transient killer whales and the and the uh, uh, the mammal eating and the fish eating killer whales of Canada have different social structures. The fish eaters are actually one of the only mammal species we know about where both the male and the female stay with their natal group, um, which is almost unheard of in any other ma mammalian uh, population. Um, the transient killer whales have a slightly smaller group size, and Robin Baird a couple of, uh, few, a couple of decades ago now did, did some beautiful research showing that their group size was optimised to maximise the sort of per capita energy intake from the, from the species that they hunted. Uh, and there's a paper just been published from killer whales in Iceland which show that uh, shows a, a huge mess, basically, and, and the killer whales in Iceland seem to behave more like humpbacks. And, uh, you know, <laughs> don't know why. We don't know why, but, but yes, there absolutely are where we have the data. Thanks, Luke. We're more or less out of time. I wonder if I could invite you both to close with some thoughts about the future of whales. I mean, both of you, I think, mentioned that in many of these cases we have extremely vulnerable populations. Will there still be whales in 50 years' time? What do we have to do to guarantee that the, these species have a future? 
Well, I mean, I only make general points about that. When, I, when I've been to the eastern coast of Australia, they're reporting big increases in humpback whale calves, a 5 to 10% increase year on year. Um, that there are now, seem to be, um, for instance, blue whales coming up the Irish Sea. Um, the moratorium on, on, on whaling, which was, which was um, implemented in 1983, seems to have had an effect. I don't know whether Lou would agree, but uh, I mean, certainly um, some way, but I mean, certainly humpback whales are doing much better. They were taken off the red list, weren't they? Was it two years ago? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, uh, uh, and when you consider that whales such as the North Atlantic right whale, which is very specifically feeds the Bay of Fundy off Cape Cod, which I'm quite um, familiar with, um, were reduced to a few dozen uh, they were the first whale to be um, protected in the 1930s by legislation. Um, uh, and now that there's still only around 500, um, and uh, it's difficult to know whether a species like that could last out this century. Um, there's so many threats. Its nickname is the urban whale. It's a very slow-moving whale, feeding at the surface, it's feeding on copepods, tiny um, uh, zooplankton the size of a grain of rice, eating a ton of those a day. Uh, taking no notice of the fact that it's moving through the, one of the world's busiest shipping lanes. Um, uh, you know, you do wonder how these animals will survive, but they are incredibly resilient. And, and, and just that notion of... of, of um, uh, there, is, there is recovery, I think, for the animals. Um, uh, sperm whales, I mean, I think, I think in Hal's social evolution, sperm whale social evolution in the ocean... He quotes uh, 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 the, the population now is 360,000. That was then. I, you might have got to have an update on that. But um, it's, it's hard to think of what could actually really could precipitate any you know, new sort of extinction threats to those animals. So I, 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 I mean, often you look at this, the, the human interaction with these animals and it's incredibly depressing, you know, and the amount of... Pollution, because of where whales sit on the in the food chain, a lot of what we have pumped into the ocean and continue to to do to the ocean um, affects them very obviously from anthropogenic sound, which is for an animal which lives in a world of sound is incredibly difficult. You know, if imagine a hundred years ago there was almost no human sound in the ocean, and now it's constant. Um, uh, weeks after 9/11, um, when the shipping lanes between Boston and the east coast of America were and Europe were, were stopped um, because of the terrorist attacks. Um, the guys studying the Centre for Coastal Studies who were co recording the sounds of uh, right whales um, realised they stopped shouting. Um, so there are bad things and good things uh, about the stories. So I, I try to be very optimistic about it. Yeah, Phil, it's absolutely right. that The relief from the hunting pressure of whaling has allowed a lot of populations to recover. Um, some have done so mysteriously better than others. Um, again, there may be a cultural perspective to this to this history. Where, you know, when you when you lose the knowledge of a particular piece of habitat, um, you can't ordinarily you can't necessarily in a cultural species assume that it's just going they're just going to repopulate that habitat because it's appropriate for them. If they don't know about it, they can't get there. Um, so some species may be retarded a bit in their recovery because of that, uh, those kind of factors. Other species, are, as you say, are, are bouncing back really, really healthily. Grey whales, humpback whales. Um, there are acute stresses of, of acute threats to some uh, uh, particular species. Um, um, 
with the Quito now in, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Gulf of California is down to, I think, 30 individuals, and I suspect that's going to be a loss, and we're going to lose that species. Um, and um, while we might manage some of the sort of acute interactions with noise and shipping and things like that, um, two things, really. We've got to stop putting things in the, in, in the ocean. We're just starting to see these microbeads now show up in, in, in absolutely horrific quantities in horrific places, realising what we've been doing over the last mm -hmm. 20 years with respect to that. Um, but I think that's a solvable problem. Um, over the longer term, the climate is changing. don't really care what political party you belong to. It is changing. It's going to change massively. Um, it's very, very hard to predict. I suspect there will be some winners and there will be some losers, and we may well lose some species as a result of that. But. Thanks very much. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Thanks very much for your attention.